0: One dark early morning in October, I was sitting on a German railway station platform waiting to board a train to Cologne when a pigeon on one of the girders above my head crapped all over my sleeve. I couldn't help wondering if this is a comment on the whole notion of my crazy journey. What on earth am I doing, traveling around the world, trying to see 200 copies of the same book? Let me explain. My name is Greg Doran. I'm the artistic director emeritus of the Royal Shakespeare Company, and I've been celebrating the quatercentenary of arguably the most famous secular book in the world by trying to see as many of the remaining copies as I can. I'm calling this mad quest the Folio Roadshow. 400 years ago in 1623, seven years after Shakespeare's death, A collection of 36 of his plays was published by his two friends, John Hemmings and Henry Condal. We now call it The First Folio. The original print run was around 750. 235 of them survive today. But if they are all basically the same book, why try to see so many copies? Well, as it turns out, Every folio has a story of its own to tell. I'll come back to Cologne a little later. Let me begin by telling you about our own first folio back home in Stratford-upon-Avon. The RSC is lucky enough to have our own copy of Mr Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies, and it has one of the most extraordinary stories of all. I showed our copy to RSC chair... Baroness Sriti Vedera. So, we're in 1964, Mm -hmm. quite centenary of Shakespeare's birth, Mm -hmm. and the world was celebrating Shakespeare. And having never celebrated any of the anniversaries before this, the Vatican decided to get in on the act. So it would celebrate Shakespeare. So... What do you do if you want to celebrate Shakespeare? Will you come to the Royal Shakespeare Company and say, could you send us some actors, please? Well, actually, if the Pope had never seen a performance, a live performance, while sitting, as it were, in Well, a Pope, yes. Yeah. So uh, we send over uh, three actors and uh, a, a sort of programme of Shakespeare extracts. Mm-hmm. And Dorothy Tutin... Who was with the company at the time and tony church a veteran rsc actor um, and Derek godfrey all fly out to rome for mm-hmm. this performance but we also decide <laughs> for no apparent reason we decide that we will take our folio with us as well um, the the man who the, the marketing manager of the RSC at the time is the man um, entrusted with the folio, which he wraps in brown paper and puts in a briefcase and has it chained to his wrist. But he's not allowed to fly, <laughs> because uh, if you fly and the plane crashes, you will lose the book. If you go on a train and it crashes, you might save the book. So so Goodness he me. so he makes a, his way.
1: <laughs> that's a risk to have taken. That's boat, yeah. Yes. That
0: is. Um, so we are in, it, it happens to coincide, um, the Quatercentenary Centenary happens to coincide with the Second Vatican Council,
1: right. whereas
0: the Catholic Church is trying to modernize, and uh, trying to bring us into the 20th century. All the cardinals from all around the world have gathered in Rome. We're in the Palazzo Pio in front of 2,000 dignitaries of the Catholic Church and they do their performance. Right. All goes fine. At the end, His Holiness wishes to, uh, to c- congratulate the actors. So they go up to see him. Dorothy Tewton presents, <laughs> presents this volume for the Pope to bless. And uh, the Pope, instead of giving the papal blessing, says, oh, thank you very much, and hands it, home, <laughs> thinking it's a gift. And literally, it is on its way to the Vatican vaults. Um, And (laughs) Cardinal Heenan, head of the Catholic Church in in England, uh, he intervenes and it is only his intervention which (laughs) saves the day and prevents an international incident. So, that is our great story. Back to Cologne. I'm sitting in uh, the Brussels Eurostar train station, having just got off the Eurostar train from... London and uh, uh, I'm here in the capital of the European Union and um, waiting for a train to take me on to Cologne it's a very busy station um, it's w- one of the uh, great sort of hubs of Europe um, and I'm here uh, on my way to Germany to see the German first folios. Um, in an hour or so, I'll be getting on a train to Cologne to see their folio, and then on to Berlin to see the one that was given to the Royal Library by the King of Prussia, and then to Frankfurt Book Fair and finally to Stuttgart to see their copy. I had been met at the Bahnhof by the vice-president of the German Shakespeare Association, Dr Roland Weidel, who took me to the Universitäts- und Stadtbibliothek, the university and town library, and introduced me to Dr Christian Hofras, head of the Archive. We went up to one of the reading rooms where the precious volume was brought into me. I hadn't been allowed to see where it was stored, as this is a very treasured possession of the university and its security is taken very strictly and seriously indeed. In 1902, Sidney Lee, in the census of all the known first folios at that time, described the Cologne copy I am about to see as Class 1, Division A. One of 14 perfect copies in the world, and therefore one of the most valuable. I I love the way... um, That your colleague had to carry this in and wait until you arrived. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's wonderful.
1: Yes, I said to (laughs) him. She did. She did, yes, of course.
0: It's very well preserved. (laughs) Absolutely. It's one of the
1: best copies. I I, I had uh, one of the best uh, copies. Not only the the binder. Don't forget
0: about me only sitting down and nobody else telling uh,
1: you about. Also, the paper is in a very, very good uh, condition. Can I? I Yes, of course. You can open it. You see that's a typical there you go 19th century
0: <laughs> so um we have two book plates yeah. one from the earl of Carisfort yes. at elton hall which i think is near peterborough
1: this <laughs> is the Ori carisworth proby newton copy yes
0: and this is mm-hmm. newton, the this newton is, bit of it yeah. so um it didn't it doesn't arrive in In Cologne, in in Cologne till nineteen sixty. Is that
1: right? Yes, they bought it in nineteen sixty. The first, the second, the third, the fourth edition, Uh and the poems also. Ah yes. And um, it wasn't a normal uh, book selling, so um, they got uh, yes, they, they they take the chance and buy it. Yes. For this, and it was in completely the five books for 425,000
0: DM. Right, which I think, I'm, not, I'm only because I've just read it, not that I can suddenly calculate it. I think that's about 36,000 pounds.
1: Yes, that's yeah. so nearly... At, that the, time, at def- the time. At, at the time. But
2: today would be about uh, 300,000 pounds, I 50,000 pounds
0: one of the most interesting things about this book i think when sidney lee so sidney lee yeah. did his uh, census in 1902 of all the extant copies that he could find in the world he descri- he categorized them um, in various divisions in a way that i find a little bit offensive because he goes he goes Perfect copies, class one A. Yes. These, these, these. And he, there are fourteen of them, and then it goes well. Class B, slightly less perfect, and then it goes all the way through. So there are various copies you look for, and they go. It's Sydney Lee's class of a sort D. You know, you, you feel devoted <laughs> yes. somehow, but
1: perfect. this
0: yes. is one of the fourteen yes. perfect yes.
1: ones. Class A, yeah. uh, number six. Number six. <laughs>
0: number six. Yes. Uh, First hard.
1: class after 400 years. Uh, and, and Not bad. Know,
0: <laughs> but as I was carefully working my way through this extremely valuable and apparently perfect copy, watched by Dr. Hofrath, the head archivist, and her colleagues, and by the vice president of the German Shakespeare Association, I turned to Henry VI, Part Three. There was a sharp intake of breath.
1: So, a so, uh, representation um, of the book. Oh, yeah.
0: Sitting in the gutter in the centre of the book was a torn page corner.
1: So, somebody has read it. <laughs> yeah. Look at that. There's something that. Yes, it's not slide
0: back in there, couldn't it? Shall I just leave it there? Yeah, please. Shall I tell you where is it is? Do, do you want to take, take a note can of it? i sell it, it is. for
1: yeah. hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So I've yeah. got a piece of the first soya.
0: Shall I just take a note of it for you? Yeah, so that, you yeah,
1: so it? that, that, that's, that proves Don't it wasn't, yeah. was never restored um, just for yes. the binding. Mm-hmm. So it's I you gave it to I, a, I can do that for you. Yeah, yes, <laughs> you <laughs> to, uh,
0: You take it home. <laughs> I'm rather, I'm rather amazed by that actually. Just sort of, that makes it so real, doesn't it?
1: Look at the first interesting that it's still there. Yes. Well, I,
0: I wonder whether somebody, you know, you're not really meant to, to turn the pages by the corners, are you? But But as if somebody, somebody's yeah. Well, somebody's read it. Somebody's taken it from that corner and got. (gasps) And the rest of the page hasn't yeah. come with it,
1: so, now I've so picked, they've
0: just gone. I'll, I'll, I'll pretend that's so not now
1: I've got a problem. <laughs> don't, don't what have I done with this little piece?
0: Should we just leave it? in, yeah, the, in we'll leave it, it is, it's, it's, where it is. where we found it. It's
1: it's, it's a part of the original. It's, it's
0: part of its story
1: and part of its story. I, think I am now
0: part of its story. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. We
0: are part of the story. and Thank God you didn't come back and I, suddenly I turned it to that page and you thought it was me. Whoever was responsible for this terrible act of vandalism had clearly decided that if they needed the perfect place to hide this poor, torn-off page corner, it would be in Henry VI Part Three. The other copies I saw in Germany, in Berlin and Stuttgart, were also undoubtedly very fine copies, if not as perfect as the Cologne copy. The Berlin copy, which had been donated to the library by William I, King of Prussia, was as crisp as if it had just been printed. But that suggested to me merely that no one had actually ever read it. On the other hand, at Skipton in North Yorkshire, I encountered a very different folio to the pristine copy in Cologne. It was one of the grubbiest I have so far encountered on my folio roadshow. At the Craven Museum, in the heart of the little market town of Skipton, the gateway to the Dales, I asked how Skipton came to own a first folio. So you've had the... uh Um, folio for a long time, but only recently Mm. discovered it was a first folio, is that right? Mm,
3: Yes, so we actually had this copy since 1936, um, and when it came into the museum it was actually recorded as a second folio, and it was only in 2003 that we actually found out, we had Dr Anthony Weston, who is a folio expert, and he actually discovered that it was a first folio. Um, So we've only known since 2003, and we've only had it on display as such since 2011, so yeah, it's really quite recent.
0: It was a big moment for Skipton. A local campaign managed to raise the money to build a secure room and a secure display case, and they even got Patrick Stewart, a great Yorkshireman, to record the voiceover describing the treasure.
1: Well, I have
0: to confess that until I was approached by the museum, I didn't know that this particular
2: folio, or part folio as it is, uh, existed. And I certainly didn't know it was as close to where I've lived as Skipton. So I find that really
0: exciting. I asked Jenny Hill, the collection's lead at the Craven Museum, about their first folio's original owner, a tobacco manufacturer and cotton mill owner called John Wilkinson. And what about Wilkinson himself then? Is is am I right in thinking, are we just is, are we grateful to Wilkinson just for the fermier, or is was was his influence on the whole museum?
3: No. Well, mainly it is the folio that he did collect. Um, We don't actually know how he came by the folio. We know that he purchased it, we think, in about 1900, um, but we don't know where his copy came from. Do you have any
1: problems before that? Mm. No.
3: We've got a couple of theories that have been touted. Oh, really? So there's been two locations in Craven that have been known to have a folio Oh, it was just outside of Craven. Um, one was in a collection at Eshton Hall, which is a large oh local house. Yay. There was a local collector. She collected a large library of books. So her name was Frances Mary Richardson Curra. So she had a very large collection that I think she inherited from her grandfather and she right. expanded on but we think her copy of the folio might have been a third folio. Okay. It was listed in the catalogue in the 1830s as a third folio, right. but she died in the 1860s, so it is possible she purchased a mm. first folio mm. in, in that period. Mm. Then the second option, which we've discussed at great length, um, is you might have heard of Pondon Hall, mm-hmm. which is actually over in Haworth, mm. where uh, the Brontes, Brontes obviously mm. lived, mm-hmm. and it's thought, well, we're pretty sure that they borrowed books from Ponton Hall and they so had, the had a good
0: to it. <laughs> <laughs> no,
3: that'd be a great <laughs> story. Yeah, I would just
0: uh, I would just <laughs> <shot that blood laughs> <was stole it.
3: laughs> Well, we think that they had a copy of the folio at Pond and Hall and we think it might may have been a first folio. There is a record of it being a, a collection of loose leaves. Okay, yes. And our folio has only been bound very recently. There's a theory that it might not originally have been bound. But Anthony West did think our folio because of the margins in it looked like it had been unbound for a very long time.
1: Uh-huh.
3: So it does fit in with this idea that when the Pond and Hall collection was sold yeah, um, and they, it was recorded that they found loose leaves of a folio that that possibly could link up and they were sold around 1899. I no. would
0: get, okay. I would get <clears throat> that right in there. Get that this <laughs> yeah. the, Brontes, the Bronte sisters read this one. Yes. Well we know
1: so that Bronte's true. had access to Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And we We don't believe they had a copy at that house. Um, I used to work at Parsonage. Oh, did you? Um, So Pondon seems the most likely.
0: So what kind of scale was their library at At uh, at
1: It was quite big. It was touted as the biggest private library in Yorkshire at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, Hundreds and hundreds of books. It was quite big, extensive,
3: yeah.
0: Jenny and her assistant Charlotte very kindly took the folio out of its case and brought it upstairs for me to examine more closely. While they were doing so, I did a bit of research. I remembered a letter Charlotte Bronte had written to a friend about Shakespeare. By the time Jenny and Charlotte had brought the folio upstairs, I had found the letter
3: online. So I was just saying that our folio is actually missing all the comedies um, and also part of um, some of the, the tragedies. We're missing the last tragedy as well. So. Right,
0: right, right. Uh, so it's missing what it would call a tragedy. It's missing Cymbeline. Yes, it is. Um, because Cymbeline... I mean, but often, often the last plays, um, the last and the first pages are, are the ones that get damaged most, aren't they? So. But... I've just, on this very brief blog, on your fascinating theory about Pondon and Hall and the Brontes, (laughs) which I'm going to credit to you, (laughs) Um, I'm going to read it to you. On the 4th of July, 1834, Charlotte wrote to Ellen Nussie.
1: She was a close friend of hers from school.
0: Okay, good. Uh, Advising her what she should read. She says, if you like poetry, let it be first rate, Milton, Shakespeare, Thompson, Thompson. Um, Goldsmith, Pope, if you will, though I don't admire him, Scott, Byron, Campbell, Wordsworth and Southey. Now, Ellen, don't be startled at the names of Shakespeare and Byron. Both these were great men and their works are like themselves. You will know how to choose the good and avoid the evil. The finest passages are always the purest. The bad are invariably revolting. You will never wish to read them over twice. Omit the comedies of Shakespeare. See? Your eyebrows went right up there at that point. Um, um, So she has advised her school friend to omit the comedies, to omit the comedies. what does this further early mean <laughs> yeah. it's the that? comedies is that because she, she hadn't read them
1: when she thought well I don't know I think in order
0: to have, to say don't read them she must, she have. must have read them yeah, yeah. yeah. I think so yeah. I think on my quest so far, it's the grubbiest one. I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I like
3: to think that means it's well loved. <laughs> it's well loved, that's right. <laughs> it's it got right. have some
1: kind of distinction. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Bronte, or just Bronte the Bronte. Or, or mo- maybe we should just say the most well
0: fun. The Skipton copy has become one of my very favourite copies of the first folio, whether or not anyone can prove that the Bronte sisters ever read it. So, of all the folios I have seen, some are in almost pristine condition and others are, frankly, a bit tatty. But, as I say, they all have a story to tell. Who owns all of these 235 extant first folios today? Well, according to the latest census, about 10% of the copies are in private hands, and two-thirds of those owners want to remain anonymous for one reason or another. But many are now owned by institutions, such as universities, colleges and schools, or collections, such as our own RSC collection held at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in Stratford. But many have been bequeathed to public libraries, and one of the very first is still treasured very close to the RSC's Stratford home, in the library of the city of Birmingham. And it was acquired for the people of Birmingham. It belongs to them. Sitting in Centenary Square in Birmingham. (laughs) Centenary Square is so called because it was named uh, in 1989 to mark the centenary of Birmingham achieving city status. Well, today in very proud city, hosting the Commonwealth Games, and uh, in front of me is an enormous animatronic, mechanical bull um, representing the industry of Birmingham. Um, and it was the highlight of the opening of the Commonwealth Games. It has huge horns um it's got a great big anchor chain tail and it's a really magnificent uh puppet i have to say it uh, stands uh, in front of uh, a great pleasure palace a people's palace which is um birmingham library It's a famous um, uh, piece of architecture. Um, It opened in 2013, and it is a sort of gold and silver ziggurat topped off with a gold rotunda, which houses the magnificent uh, Shakespeare Memorial uh, Library. Um, It is a sort of wonderful design of filigree of interlocking circles reminding us of the industrial heritage of the uh, city i believe and also of course it's um where it's a location close to the jewelry quarter it's been described um, by somebody as a, a wedding cake and in true birmingham with true birmingham wit by somebody else as uh like bed springs. Looks like the bed springs under a a mattress. Um, But I think it's a rather magnificent building and it houses um, a new exhibition which was opened um, by Ewan Fernie, who is the mastermind behind the exhibition, uh, centering around a first folio which was given to the city of Birmingham by George Dawson. Um, <laughs> professor Ewan Fernie takes up the story.
2: So I'm, I'm Ewan Fernie and I'm, I'm a professor of Shakespeare Studies at the Shakespeare Institute, but I'm also my sins culture lead at the College of Arts and Law at the university. Um, perhaps most pertinently, I'm the director of the Everything to Everybody project. And, and tell me... Why is it called the Everything to Everybody Project? It's called the Everything to Everybody Project because its its inspiration is somebody called George Dawson who announced in, in the mid-19th century in Birmingham that the time had come to give everything to everybody, uh, by which he especially meant that all the... Um, all the, all the mo- most precious things, really, in human culture should be shared generally. Um, and he believed, didn't he, in, 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 in education for all,
0: including the working classes, and and, and that, that, is, that it was important. There was a, a real sense
2: of Victorian uh, democracy uh, at work, wasn't it? there? Really, yeah, there, 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 there really was, and, and yes, he absolutely did. And, and Shakespeare was key to that, I think, as, um, of course, for us, Shakespeare is the cornerstone of, of of education and sort of resented by you know <laughs> generations of school children and 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 so, and so forth but i think it's important to recall that shakespeare wasn't in the curriculum at this time so shakespeare is a sort of new a new chance and um, as a vernacular poet he he could 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 be the oh, I'm dramatist he could be the the poet, poet for the people in in a new way and that's certainly what what Dawson thought and, and wanted. So there's almost a sort of principled hostility to, to classical classical learning. And is it... Is the tercentenary of Shakespeare's birth
0: in yeah. 1864 a trigger then for these Victorian
2: gentlemen in, yeah. in Birmingham to decide to do something about that? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think, to be fair to Dawson, he... He, he had lot, it was a very comprehensive vision, really. And he starts with sort of fairly revolutionary inclinations and, um, and then I think decides on what in the German student revolution becomes the, much later, becomes the, the the long march through institutions and things actually i'm going to attend committees i'm going to establish new structures i'm going to institutionalize um so he's on every committee in 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 birmingham and he cares about parks and sport and all sorts of things but he and he he doesn't he doesn't. He really doesn't believe in the segregation of people or of culture. He wants to to promote the the richest, most inclusive life. But he is, of course, himself a a kind of intellectual, and and Shakespeare is totally key to that. And he he felt that that Shakespeare could be the vehicle of for a more democratic culture. But more than that as well. I mean, at first to to look at it first is to think this is extremely eccentric. But he was saying things. As a very young, um, rather rather dashing, sort of strangely confident man who sort of come from nowhere, and he was saying things like he, he said in Manchester that Shakespeare is the the means by which. God declares his own ideas. <laughs> That's quite a statement. It was a really extraordinary <laughs> statement. And apparently the newspaper reports tell us young Manchester was, 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 was there. And they were very, very excited by this. And of course, to us, that sounds just, just a bit bonkers. But in, in the mid-19th century, for a man from a nonconformist background to start saying things like that yeah. was, was really quite an extraordinary thing. And, and so they, they decide to get this
0: Shakespeare collection. Yeah. Um, and they, um, they they build the collection in the library yeah uh, and what they lack is a first folio yes and and, and then they, they they pitch for one first of all yeah uh, apparently in the 1870 or something
2: yeah
0: and it's too expensive
2: yes <laughs> yes they can't afford it it's because because it's a the it's it's a thoroughly voluntary thing. I mean, it, it's 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 a collection made by voluntary subscriptions. Uh-huh. It's a, it's the gift of the corporation. It, there's no endowment other than what they've been able to scrape together. Right, so right, yeah, right, right. And then and
0: then the and then the library burns down. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I believe that something like 7000 volumes mm. of those 7000 volumes like something like 500 mm. I mean, remain it's a
2: tragedy. Um so it was a good job they didn't get first really. <laughs> that's That that is that is that is true. Um I was reminded again that they had a sort of mock-up of folio um, of of sort of original leaves and facsimiles yeah. uh, which did I think go up in right. the flames right. but they didn't have the the coveted copy <laughs> that they, they, they later acquired so then they get
0: the copy that yeah. we saw yeah, um, and this is an extraordinary thing for Birmingham because yeah. am I right in saying this is the first
2: folio that is bought for the people yes yes no it absolutely is and um your friend of mine, Emma Smith, says says that to this day it's the it's the only first fol- folio that was bought for a public institution as part of a vision of comprehensive including working class education. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I saw the
0: um the copy in the John Rylands Library in, in Manchester, yeah. um, and Enriquetta Ryland's uh, John Ryland's widow. Um declared that that copy was for the people of manchester but i didn't i think she meant yeah the rather well-educated people of manchester and and not the sort of
2: hoi polloi no and (laughs) um george dawson's personal preference really was for the (laughs) for the hoi Hoi polloi polloi. he said he'd rather walk (laughs) with them and talk to them and 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 so forth and yes so so i think that's
0: And there is another Birmingham connection with one of the only three copies of the first folio in the entire Southern Hemisphere. The first folio in Sydney was donated by another philanthropist who built his business in Birmingham. Sir Richard Tangy had manufactured the hydraulic jacks, which had hoisted Cleopatra's needle into place on the Thames Embankment in 1878, and he had subsequently opened new offices of his business in Australia. The other two copies in the Southern Hemisphere were donated by the same man. Sir George Grey was the colonial governor of Auckland in New Zealand, twice, and of the Cape Colony of South Africa. In June this year, I visited both folios in Auckland and in Cape Town. The colonial legacy of Shakespeare was clearly apparent in different ways in each country. In both places, the historical legacy is challenging. But in each country, I met people, teachers, actors, directors, for whom Shakespeare is their contemporary, and how he got there is irrelevant to them. The fact is, he still speaks for them now. In Auckland, I saw a production of King Lear by the Auckland Theatre Company with a diverse cast, which was vivid, contemporary, and perhaps most importantly, packed. In Cape Town, I met a group of people who organised the Shakespeare Schools Festival throughout South Africa, and they are messianic about just how Shakespeare can transform the lives of young people in that country. I'm remembering that pigeon back in Cologne Station all those months ago. Apparently, in some cultures, a bird is a favoured messenger of God, and one of them pooping on you is a blessing. So it could have been a good sign after all. So we're off. Please join me as I visit more First Folios around the world on my Folio Roadshow, and meet some of the people who look after them and share with me what Shakespeare means to them, as this very special book enters its fifth century. I'm Greg Doran. See you next time.